You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. So with no further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Before I do that, how many of you are on LinkedIn? Please raise your hand. That's great share. And those of you who are not, um, if you're wireless, that's all right, you don't have to, if you're, there, there are at least, at least a couple of people who are online in the room and they may be able to get you onto the site before the hour is over, if not, go home right after and get on. It's one of the most useful social networking sites on the planet. Um, I'm only involved in one social networking site and, and LinkedIn is the one. So, but what about our guest? Reid Hoffman is the founder and he is the chairman and president of products of LinkedIn. And those of you who have the hard copy version of the announcement for the day see that his bio says a slightly different thing. And that is because Reed brought in his um, new CEO that he's going to bring into the firm to take it to the next level. He'll be staying with LinkedIn, but he has brought in a new executive by the name of Dan Nye. And so it's been a very, very busy week, and we're really glad that Reed has been able to spare the time to come and visit with us today, despite all the things that are happening as he uh, changes around his executive team at LinkedIn. In addition to the work there, he's had a very storied career. Um, he's been at places like Apple. He's invested in virtually all of the interesting social networking startups that were founded over the course of the last decade. You can read faster than I can talk about that. So let's welcome, a warm welcome, back to Stanford to an alumni of the school and one of our favorite uh, folks out there in the Valley, Reed Hoffman. Come on back. So I'm going to pace a little bit, but I, um, I guessed that what content would be most interesting and useful. Um, so I will try to go through that in kind of 20, 25 minutes. Hopefully it'll provoke interesting thoughts. Um, if it doesn't, my apologies. And anything is okay for questions. I'm only going to talk a little bit about LinkedIn at the end. Um, but again, uh, any field is fine for questions. So I'll start with um, kind of some principles that I've learned about entrepreneurship. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll do a slight bit of, the, of, of my narrative as a way of introducing this. Um, I was an undergraduate here. I graduated in 1990. I went to uh, Oxford University to get a master's degree in philosophy. It's a requirement for entrepreneurship. That's a joke. Because <laughs> um, I thought I was going to be an academic. Um, and, um, and what I... Uh, realized about a year into the program at Oxford uh, was that I actually wasn't interested in, um, I was more interested in being a public intellectual than I was a scholar. And what I mean by public intellectual is someone who helps us as individuals and as a society figure out both who we are currently and who we should be. Uh, my model for that was writing articles for the New York Review of Books and being a professor somewhere. And I realized that in order to be a professor, actually, you had to be a scholar first, which meant you spent 15 years of your life writing books and articles that 50 people would read. Um, and it was a little antithetical to the goal. So I decided I would become a business person. And I actually knew from the very beginning that I wanted to do software startups. Um, I had already been exposed to the net here. Um, I had hacked Unix scripts at the Center for the Study of Language and Information. And I thought that online would be a really interesting medium to go create uh, businesses. And one of the pluses about creating businesses, my thinking at the time, not false, but partial, 
um, was you can weld it with a capital model because if you can actually create a sustainable, profitable business, it theoretically lives forever. I mean, obviously, markets change, conditions change, something eats it, right? M&A gets acquired. But you actually have something that creates a force that uh, makes change in the world. And so, um, but there were a whole bunch of things I learned uh, when I shifted from academia to entrepreneurship that were not things that I ever imagined that you needed to learn when I was in school. Um, and a little bit of what I'm going to be talking about entrepreneurship is focused on that theme, because I thought this audience might be interested in that. So starting with it, one of the things that, one of the focuses to think about entrepreneurship is think of it, thinking of it as investing. And there are basically, I think, really uh, three types of investment strategies. Um, there's, there's sure bets. And sure bets, you know, frequently you think you have a sure bet and you don't. <laughs> um, but sure bets are you have some kind of edge. Uh, you have resources that you're unique under your control. You have inside information. You have a privileged skill point. You're the only one who's allowed to invest. That's not really applicable to entrepreneurship. Um, I'm recognizing more people in the audience. <laughs> um, <clears throat> because usually entrepreneurship is in the high risk. So the second type is, you know, kind of um, uh, uh, low-risk management, it's uh, portfolios diversification. Many of these people go by looking for a career, right? So I go to law school, I go to business school, a lot of people join McKinsey, <laughs> you know, management consulting. And by the way, <laughs> one little side tip, uh, I have found that consulting backgrounds and MBAs are, are negative predictors for su successful entrepreneurship, <laughs> right? <laughs> So it's not 100% negative. There are successful entrepreneurs with both of those elements in the background. But usually, the things that attract people to that are the low-risk category. It's like, oh, I get into Stanford, and I got Stanford GSB on my background. I've met all these people. It's a way of preparing for the future. Well, it's not taking a risk. right? It's not going, I see something that other people don't see, and I'm going to, one of the metaphors that I frequently use for entrepreneurship, I'm going to jump off the cliff and assemble the plane on the way down. <laughs> right? And frequently you find that you've left key elements out, like the propeller or the engine. <laughs> right? And the end result is you hit the ground. <laughs> right? Now, you know, a path that's like, oh, I'm going to go to McKinsey, which is a really, like, really smart people, it's an you know, interesting job and everything else, well, it's safe. <laughs> right? It's a salary. Right? It's a proven path. You compete with a lot of people. You get there. So <clears throat> one of the things that I think what entrepreneurship is, is actually the third st style of investing, which is accurate contrarian the theories. So you want to pick something that is not what everyone else thinks. Right? If everyone else thinks it, it's almost actually, in fact, impossible to do it in any, any interesting way. So for example, if you're starting a generic photo sharing site right now on the web, you are out of your mind. <laughs> right? now, Maybe there's some kind of unique edge, something. But it can't be, oh, mine has music. <laughs> you know, it's got to be something that's actually, in fact, pretty unique. And if you really want to get it to discontinuous value, it, it's got to be something contrarian. It's got to be something where it's not packed with lots of other people. You have to have a chance to get the runway, you know, to get off the ground, to assemble the plane first, if you want to use the metaphor. Another metaphor I use is scuba diving. Um, because uh, one of the things that's really important to understand about entrepreneurial ventures is you're you're basically walking dead. So if you think about it, when you're underwater with, with an air tank, the air will run out. If you do not get back to the service, you're dead. <laughs> right? So in entrepreneurship, 
You're trying to figure out which way is the surface and how much oxygen do I have before I get there. Financing, it's additional oxygen. <laughs> right. so it's not success to raise money. Money, it only gives you a longer runway. <laughs> Matter of fact, and it makes the hurdle at the end higher. You raise $50 million, you now have to make a really good exit. Right? It's not really a success metric. Yeah, it's really funny, because I, I sometimes listen to some entrepreneurs talk about, well, you want to hear about how successful I've been? I raised $100 million. OK. <laughs> right? Raising money is only a step that enables you to try to be successful. It gives you enough runway. Right? And if you raise a lot of money, then that runway, then the bar at the end is much higher. So, um, so here's some key things I think to remember. And these are kind of principles about entrepreneurship that I've learned. And I'll try to put them as I, recall, as I remember them in the kind of the why it was, it was surprising to me when I moved from academia into, into business. Um, so first, work as if you're going to succeed. Right? One of the things about entrepreneurs is, um, is you're a little crazy. Because you're taking this blank thing and you're thinking, oh, I can, I can see the thing I can build. Right? It's always a lot more work and a lot harder than you think. And if you look at statistics, most entrepreneurial ventures fail. Right? So depending on which stats you look at, it's somewhere between 10 and 30% on the success range. That's in a, there is a happy exit that isn't a crater at the, you know, that isn't a little smoking ruin. Um, so you work as if you're going to succeed because you have to have that kind of, like, visualize it. But plan on the fact that you might actually fail, right? And think about the fact, matter of fact, you'd be paranoid about the fact that you may be failing. So for example, one of the lessons that was very contrary for me between my academic training, right, and my business training is, you want to get to your failure points and measure them as early as you can. Because in fact, it's like, oh, well, I'll do all this stuff to prep because I really don't want to fail. So I'll, I'll, I'll do this piece of work first, and that piece of work, and that piece of work, and this piece of work. But if this is your test failure point, and this point is, say, three years out, and you wait for three years to measure that, and you could have measured it in year one, you could have actually known that you were going to fail and had the extra few years to do something else. <laughs> right? So get to that point as soon as you can. And do not maximize getting over the hurdle. Everyone has a fear of failure. They have a fear of public embarrassment. <laughs> right? They have fear of, oh, look, I did that, and it blew up. <laughs> right? um, and there's some rationale to that. We all have brands. The, those brands affect who invests in us, who works with us, et cetera. You have to, to manage that in some intelligent way. But in fact, I see tons of people basically spend years on failed ideas because they don't actually drive it to. They just think, well, if I just get everything right, it will work. Right? And you really have to be hard-nosed about what's the central test. And if it fails that test, what do I think about it? So, um, so work as you're going to succeed, but plan on the, the contingencies of failing. Time matters. Um, frequently, um, it's one of the things that's unfortunately true is that uh, there's a market readiness to when an idea is good. So let's take one of the recent phenomena, YouTube. Um, you know, obviously, YouTube you know, had, a, had one of the most spectacular beginning growth and exits for an entrepreneur in a very compressed time period. Think about if MySpace didn't exist. Or for PayPal, the thing I did earlier, if eBay didn't exist. If those things weren't there, they could not have been the successes that they were. And what's more, before YouTube, there had been 
at least 30 to 40 video startups I knew about over the last four years, previous to that. Well, and so a lot of people say, well, I, you know, I had an idea that was like that. Yeah, and it's like, yes, you did. And some of it is just luck, <laughs> right? It's this is the right time. This is the right place. Now, Chad and Steve did a great job, right? They caught the wave. They surfed it. They surfed it really well. <laughs> they did a great job with it. But part of when you look at the lessons of this is sometimes you have to count on the fact that sometimes you're going to be lucky and sometimes you're not. And if your time cycles are really, really long, <laughs> right, the number of times that you have to, uh, to have the luck of catching a wave is small. Right? So you want to get to measuring whether or not your idea works or not as early as you can. <clears throat> um, it's about controlled risk, which means neither take tons and tons of risk and take no risk. If you think you're taking no risk, <laughs> well, either you're not doing anything <laughs> right, or you're deluding yourself. Because right? um, anything that's new involves some amount of risk. Now, the whole point about controlled risk is people then say, oh, it's risky. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to work on artificial intelligence and I'll create a device that's advancing science. Well, it's risky. You know, who knows who can do it? Well, the answer is that won't be happening anytime soon, um, <laughs> contrary to some AI predictions from some number of years ago. <clears throat> um, but focus on like if, it's, if this one risk or these two risks or hopefully no more than three break my way, then I've got something really valuable, right? And that thing can really work. Um, and in particular, actually, this, was, this, this leads to another of thing that was a big insight for me. Um, hopefully, maybe this is I was stupid. <laughs> um, in business, what the problem you're trying to solve is take the easiest, simplest problem that's valuable. You're not trying to prove how smart you are. You're not trying to prove how hard of a problem you can solve, right? Those are academic things because the way that you're rewarded here by like publishing a great paper or having a great essay or something else is. You took an intellectually very difficult problem and you displayed your mastery of it by being able to solve that problem with pure brain power. Business is about the simplest possible problem that you can actually get scalable that works and scale and, and, and like and goes you know, big. So for example, YouTube, right? Simple publishing a video, right? Um, uh, it's not to say that sometimes, by the way, there isn't a tremendous amount of work underneath it, but it's not like a grand master plan. So um, I guess I'll kind of go through quickly these kind of things to get to a little bit of the narrative, which will be interesting. But what's the fundamental strategy of a startup? People frequently think it's product strategy. It's like I have a great idea for a photo sharing site, a video site, a blogging site, a, a way of doing a new search, a way of preventing spam, a way of delivering email, whatever it is. I'm a consumer internet guy, so that's I mean. There's lots of other entrepreneurial exists, but all my examples will be in that arena. <clears throat> it's actually not product strategy and it's not sales strategy. It's financing strategy. It's, it's strategy relative to the capital markets. I'll go into a little bit more depth than this when I indicate why my first startup <laughs> had problems. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a lack of knowledge that financing strategy is central. Um, I'll come back to the other principles as we're doing the narrative. So. Um, so I left Oxford, and I decided to come back and do startups. And um, so I actually networked my way to a couple of VCs. And they said, oh, that's interesting. What's your work experience? And I was like, well, I, I've interned at Xerox Park, and I've interned at SRI International, and I interned at CSLI. And they said, no, 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 what's your work experience? Like, like have you ever worked, <laughs> done something? 
And I was like, oh. And what they were saying is, look, you want to do development software. Prove that you've professionally developed software before. You have the skills. Because there's basically three skill types that are part of a founding team. It's you're the technologist. You can build it. You're the product person, right? You, you know what it is you're delivering to your, your customer and all that, and you're a general manager. Now, it's actually usually, the product is usually in the technologist or in the general manager. They're usually, they're relatively rare that there's a unique, distinct class in the founder um, for just the product person. It happens sometimes, but it's usually either technologist or general manager, one of whom owns the product vision. And so they were saying, well, which one are you? Are you a general manager? Clearly not. You have had no experience with business. You've just come to us with a set of academic degrees. And you're not a technologist because you're not going to sit in the closet and, you know, and, and, and code for 24 hours a day and make the thing happen. So go get a job. <laughs> Learn how to do software development and come back as one of these two with uh, product experience. So I went to Apple uh, Computer, uh, eWorld. Uh, people may or may not even remember it. It was a licensee of AOL. It had all kinds of crazy, crazy things, although... <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of funny things about the history of eWorld. Then the Fujitsu, because Apple was my first, like, learn how to ship software. Fujitsu was general management. And then I started my first company, SocialNet. And this was August 1997. And there were a couple of things that I, there were, there were say, three key lessons at SocialNet. SocialNet basically returned its capital to its investors, but didn't actually do very well. And there were three key problems. The first one was, as I mentioned, was, Financing strategy is central. So in 1997 to 1998, and you know, we raised our second round in, in late 1998, all of our competitors were going to the market and saying, we're going to build f these free websites. They're going to have the whole world on them, and you should give us $40 million <laughs> right, to go do that. We were going to the market saying, well, we think subscription dating is one of the real places where you can make money on the internet. And you should give us $5 million, because we're going to kind of just you know, make a subscription web service and make it happen. And in our business model, we think, is really sound. And the business model is sound, if you look at Match.com and eHarmony and a bunch of other things now. But the problem was it was a wrong strategy at the time. Strategy at the time was everyone else was raising $40, $50 million and was going and advertising and buying deals and everything else for that money. And we were sitting here trying to make our little business model work, which in that financing climate was a dumb strategy. Your strategy has to be reflect what your financeability is, right? And the one error, our error, which is an unusual one, is very frothy capital markets. All your competitors are going to be well capitalized. And if you undercapitalize relative to your competitors, you're, you're screwed, right? The other one, of course, is can you actually raise money for this at all? Because if you can't raise money for it then, and you're not, you're not attentive to what the financing market looks like for what you're doing, then you may also die because you have inadequate financing. Second thing I learned, right, and this is a very basic on the consumer internet, is it's frequently said of retail that there are three words, location, location, location. In consumer internet, it's distribution, distribution, distribution. And matter of fact, one of the ways that I, when I'm talking to uh, on panels and stuff about entrepreneurship and consumer internet, is value of what you've built without distribution, approximate value zero. Right? If you do not get distribution, value zero. Technology is not valuable, team's not valuable, <laughs> doesn't matter. If you haven't acquired a whole bunch of users through generally natural organic means, virality is one. Most people use the word not knowing what it means. <laughs> right? Viral distribution is one. There are other forms of distribution that are natural and organic that work. Um, then your, your value is zero. And you know, we had, when, when I didn't, uh, had done um, social net, 
I hadn't realized, because when you work at like Apple and Fujitsu, you work at these places which have big channels of customers already. Right? I hadn't realized that distribution strategy was central. Right? And without dis like, that's the very first thing you worry about, uh, especially in consumer internet. And you know, I screwed that up. <clears throat> and then the final thing was the importance of, there, in software development, I break skill sets into three groups. Uh, version 0 to version 1, version 1 to version 1, one version 1 to version 2. Those are three different games. They're played differently. They have skills differently. You measure your success differently. When you're doing entrepreneurship, you're doing the V0 to V1, and the game is very different. So, like, say, for example, you go work at IBM, you get software experience for three years, that does not teach you how to do V0 to V1. Right? That's one of the things to focus on learning. So then, um, while I was doing social net, a friend of mine, who's also I'd met here as an undergraduate at Stanford, uh, Peter Thiel, said, hey, we got this cool new idea. Can you come join us? And the cool new idea was encryption on mobile phones. I said, it's a terrible idea. It's never going to work. Um, I was right. <laughs> um, and one of the mistakes he was making at the time, uh, which I had already learned early, was, well, we solved this really hard problem. It's really hard to do encryption on mobile phones. It's a really valuable thing. Right? It's like, yeah, but there's no business model. Who's going to use it? But Peter's a really good friend of mine, so I agreed to join the board um, and help him out. Um, and that morphed into PayPal because it started encryption on mobile phones, and then it was like, okay, no one's going to build on your encryption platforms. Okay, we'll do cash on mobile phones. Okay, so what are you, you know, can you get to market soon with that? Remember, time was the earlier principle. Well, we get to market soon with Palm Pilots, so we're going to have Palm Pilots. Then you're like, okay, what's your use case? Well, your use case is splitting the dinner tab at restaurants. I'm like, all right, well, how many people at all uh, at these restaurants all have Palm Pilots, <laughs> right? Just about the internet app. Oh, very few users. Okay, well, we can sync that with email. That's how the email payment idea started. Like, oh, actually, email payment sounds interesting. <laughs> Let's go do that. <laughs> um, now, even then, by the way, this is still a very crazy idea because none of us had any banking experience. <laughs> um, and so we launched this thing, and people said, well, what do you do about chargebacks? And we're like, what are chargebacks? <laughs> right. Well, are you a bank? Uh, what makes you a bank? <laughs> what makes something a bank versus not a bank? Can we just say we're not a bank? <laughs> right? And actually, it's pretty complex. So you say, okay, what makes a bank? There's one sentence that says bank accepts deposits. You're like, well, okay. And if you actually think about that, it gets complicated. You buy a phone card. Is that accepting deposits? Is a phone company a bank? <laughs> right? It actually gets pretty, pretty hairy when you do that. And one of the central things we ended up solving was, figuring out how to say we're in fact not a bank in the way that at least the federal government agreed with us. And then we also had to get all 50 states to agree with us because each state has its own individual banking regulations. But actually one of the lessons at PayPal was solve your problems in order. So for example, earlier thing that I said was get to testing your hypothesis as soon as you can, but don't try to solve all your problems at once. If you try to do that, you'll fail. Right? It's kind of like saying, I'm going to build a house by simultaneously laying the foundations, putting in the plumbing, putting up the walls, and putting in the ceiling. I'm going to do them all at the same time. <laughs> like, terrible idea for construction. <clears throat> now, you want to get to the biggest risks as soon as you can, because if actually, in fact, that big risk out here kills everything else, then you've done all that work, and then this fails. So you want to kind of try to get to solving that as soon as you can, but sometimes you have to do this edifice. You have to, you have to do this first. So that's fine. So for us, it was, well, can we get demand going, right? And at PayPal, we discovered this really valuable thing called eBay. And all these people were paying each other with checks, 
which is a terrible way to do commerce. <laughs> right? and, and you know, there were a whole bunch of sophisticated, smart moves that were made to penetrate that market. But then it started going, now we can solve the banking problem. <laughs> right? And actually, solving the banking problem was against hostile approaches, because banks didn't want us to succeed. So banks and other competitors were, would go up to regulators and say, look at these evil people PayPal. They're doing illegal banking. You should go get them. <laughs> right? And so you'd have regulators that call us that would say things like, well, why are you soliciting for deposits illegally on eBay? And you're like, soliciting for deposits? <laughs> Don't think we're doing that. Here, we'll come talk to you. <laughs> so, um, so I guess but one of the things that was also a valuable lesson at PayPal, because there was a really crazy ride because you've got Visa and MasterCard, issues, you've got banking issues, you've got your principal market is eBay. We eventually solved that by selling to eBay. I presume that's not news to anybody that's at least five years old. <laughs> um, but one of the things that is actually a central thing about entrepreneurship is thinking about competition. Ideally, you have no competition. I, I actually prefer to invest in things and to do things where there, in fact, isn't anybody who is really truly competition because it gives you the freedom if you're right about your two or three, maybe one, hypotheses to make the thing go, to, to expand and take the territory and set up your, like, this is my, my market um, before competition starts. Now, second best is slothful, decadent, stupid competition. <laughs> right? And the flip side of the banking regulation, which was a bare and nastiness for us to get through, is banks if you can compete with them without being a bank, are great to compete against. Because banks, by definition, <laughs> right, are slothful and very slow and, and, and terrible competitors. Now, part of that is because of the structure of how they work. So like one of the things that we almost did during PayPal is uh, part of the reason we merged with a company called x.com is we thought, oh, OK, actually being a bank might be a good business model. Let's go become a bank. And so we started down that road. And then we realized, what does new product launch at bank, banking institutions look like? Well, basically, it works like this. You propose your new product to the regulators, and you give them 12 months to digest it before you, launch, before you start building it and launching it. 12 months. Think about internet time. <laughs> right? 12 months is a complete product cycle where the whole world changes on the internet in a year. Banks are great to compete against. <laughs> Because by definition, the way that they all operate is for them to launch a product, they got to go talk to these people called regulators who do not care about upside. They care about risk only. They care about FDIC insurance. They're great to compete against. So when you're looking about where to, where to innovate, innovating either against no competitors, that's good, or against bad competitors, <laughs> right? That's almost as good. Not quite, but almost. Now, if you're going up against an aggressive smart competitor who is already in the market, You've either got to be really sure about what you're doing or kind of foolhardy or don't really care if it all blows up. <laughs> right. So in 2002, we sold the company to eBay, uh, started LinkedIn. I also did uh, uh, a couple of things. I did some angel investing. It's all in the, my profile on LinkedIn if people want to see it. But Flickr, Facebook, Wikia, Dig, things like that, and joined some boards. Uh, Six-part blogging. Um, one of the things I think about the internet is what happens when everyone becomes a publisher. Uh, LinkedIn is partially based on this theory. I'll mention that in a bit. Um, also Firefox, um, which I think is a really interesting. One of the things I like, really like about the internet is kind of power to the people, uh, empower every individual. It's one of the things PayPal was doing. 
everyone can become a merchant. So, um, so I'll talk a little bit about LinkedIn's design for entrepreneurs and then open for questions. Uh, I think it would be reasonable. So there were basically three core ideas in LinkedIn. So you think, all right, everyone's going to become a publisher. What does that mean? Well, um, some people are going to blog. Some people are going to photo share. Some people are going to share videos. Oh, that's good. There are good businesses on that. I've invested in some of them, on the boards of some. But I think one of the things that meant professionally is every professional is going to have a professional profile out to the web. It makes economic and rational sense because who knows what might find me, right? Um, if I'm looking for a job, a job may find me. If I'm an investor and looking for investment, a good investment may find me, right? Um, if I am a, say for example, uh, an expert on online payments, and a consulting gig finds me, that might be interesting too, or a, you know, a board of directors gig or board of advisors gig. So profile, is one of, was, that was one of the ideas. And then the other idea is, well, what's the key glue to separate signal from noise? Because of course, with my profile, you know, like for example, when I uh, signed up with Rise in 2001 and put I had been in PayPal, I got a long list of, I've got the next PayPal idea, come meet with me. I'm like, okay, <laughs> uh, how do you sort between the people who are crazy, <laughs> the people who are well-meaning but fundamentally don't know what they're talking about, <laughs> and the people that actually, in fact, as an investor, you would want to talk to? <laughs> um, and the answer, in part, was trusted web relationships, right? So the, the way that actually all professionals work, everyone who actually, in fact, has assets that they can deploy, say, example, a job at Google, an investment, <laughs> that sort of thing, they use personal referral. Right? If you come, for example, walking up to me and saying, hey, look at my business in this venue is a very bad way to reach me. Yes, we're at Stanford. <laughs> right? Stanford's a much smart, smart place. <clears throat> but I don't know how to sort that out from the other 15 approaches I have this week. And I'm not even a professional investor. <laughs> I, I have a day job. It's called LinkedIn. The best way to reach me or any other investor is come in through someone that goes, who will say, this person rocks. <laughs> They've got a great idea, they're sensible, they're smart. It's worth your time to take 30 to 60 minutes, of which I have, personally, a maximum of three of those slots a week, because I normally do this on Sundays. Right? And it's time for me, time away from my wife. But for example, if I'm a venture capitalist, I get maybe 50 to 100 business plans minimum per week, probably 300 or 400. They show up through the mail, and they get dumped in my lobby. Right? I don't look at any of those. Right? I, don't know, I don't know of a VC who spends any time looking at those whatsoever. Sometimes you have associates. You say, hey, you're not busy. <laughs> Go read those things. See if there's anything interesting. I'm particularly interested in online gaming. Is there anything in that there? You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Best way is to get an introduction. Because even if, for example, your idea is half-baked, if someone that an investor, for example, trusts <laughs> says, pay attention to this one. They're smart. Pay attention, because one investment strategy is invest in people. Right? There's a whole line of, of Silicon Valley investing that's, I invest in people, and that's, that's what I do. So, so LinkedIn was profile, network of trust for searching, for reaching, and for filtering out from being reached, and then the applications built on top of it. So for example, we recently launched LinkedIn Answers. And actually, for most entrepreneur stuff, if you're not paying attention or using LinkedIn Answers, you are technologically out of date. 
Um, basically, a lot of the questions that you would have about customers, markets, that kind of stuff, you can go, if you have a network built up on LinkedIn, you can go ask them there, and you will be stunned at the quality of answers that you can get. <clears throat> and I, not normally that salesy, but I'm just kind of talking the truth. <laughs> um, so I'll do one little slant on, um, on one way of crisply understanding LinkedIn, and then a couple things about how I believe actually all careers entrepreneurial, and then I will open for questions. So the slant is one specific vertical way of thinking about um, LinkedIn is its resume version two. Resume version one, technology, is a list of assertions on a text document, printed or electronic, that I send you privately between you and me. There's all kinds of problems with this. There is um, the egregious things, such as people lying, right? Like, I have a degree from Stanford when I don't. I worked at Apple when I didn't, <laughs> right? That sort of thing. Two, what is this normal kind of gray line between being adequately salesy, because you want to, it's a sales document, you're selling yourself, and a little over the line. Like, oh, I actually wasn't a team uh, manager, I was, I was on the team. We didn't actually sell you know, $5 million equipment. We sold $1 million equipment. This stuff tends to get exaggerated a lot in resumes. Well, so in resume version two, you have a resume that can be potentially network validated because it can be validated by the people that you've worked with, bosses, coworkers, so forth, saying, yes, I've done that. And additionally, there's additional metadata, like the person's really sharp or the person's really organized, the person always gets done what they say they'll get done or whatever. And in part of that network environment, it becomes very easy to, to check someone out. So for example, one of my hopes with that LinkedIn is not only will reference checking be done by a hiring manager for someone that they're hiring or an investor on a prospective investment, but also the reverse. You can reference check your prospective manager. <laughs> Do I want to work for this person? Because by the way, your manager, uh, if you get a job, will have a huge amount more to do with your happiness, probably, than even your spouse. <laughs> um, you're there for 48, 50 hours during the week, and it can be pretty miserable. Likewise, for an investor. If you chose the wrong investor, that can be a, um, one of the things I say about venture investing frequently is, it's like getting married on a dinner and two PowerPoint pitches, <laughs> right? Because now all of a sudden, you're, you're economically tied at the hip in a really tight way through what is almost universally a stressful experience. Because startups always go through something I call a valley of the shadow. There's always some period where you're going, I thought this was a good idea once upon a time. Why was that? <laughs> right? So for example, at PayPal was in August uh, 2000, we burned $12 million in one month without a dime of revenue. The cost line was escalating, and we were going to be a big mushroom cloud in February. <laughs> right? Like, hmm, why did, we, why did we think this was a good idea? <laughs> but you know, it worked. So here's the last bit. I think entrepreneurship is very important because, in fact, I think that every modern career is heading towards entrepreneurship. Right? The I work at one company for the rest of my life, IBM, whatever, is gone. It's even gone in Japan. Right? I mean, basically, it's still the kind of 35, 40-year-olds are still kind of working at one company, Fujitsu, for whatever, for you know, the rest of their career. But amongst the 20-somethings and the early 30-somethings, it's even changing there. So that means that, in fact, you are becoming a small business and you're becoming someone of an entrepreneur, even if your elected career path is, I work for this company, and then I work for this company, and then I work for this company, and then I work for this company. Because you're transferring job, you know, jobs between them. And you have all the issues that a small business or an entrepreneur cares about. The brand of you, 
uh, what you do, that sort of thing. And so one of the things that I actually think is more important is actually I'm beginning to think that the skills learned from entrepreneurship are applicable to any career path. That's it. Absolutely. I, I'll interpret them too. So. <laughs> Omar? You started off uh, in entrepreneurship and then also later moved to investing. Uh, does that imply that being a successful entrepreneur uh, makes it easier to be a successful investor? Uh, not always. Um, oh, yes, thank you. <laughs> does uh, does success and all things you learn from entrepreneurship lead to the right principles in investing? And the answer is, if you do it well, it helps a lot, but a lot of people do it poorly. And part of that is because many entrepreneurs actually start with a gem of an idea. Like, like I've got this idea, like it's um, uh, a new search engine, or it's um, uh, you know, a way of preventing spam getting into my outlook. And that's what motivated me. right? And I learned about, like, even if I made it successful, I learned a bunch of operational techniques and how to steer this boat through the, you know, the minefield. But that's not the same thing as choosing an investment loan. I'll give you an example of a principle that I've learned that I tell a lot of my venture friends. Investors frequently make the following mistake. They go, oh, if I were involved with an idea, then that could be successful, so I'm going to invest in that. As an investor, you, have, you can help an idea, you can help a team, but fundamentally you are making bad investments if you don't make an investment based on the fact that if I walked away tomorrow, I give you the check and I disappear, is it a good investment? Because if the answer to that question is no, you should not make the investment. Because <laughs> there's a limited amount. I mean, what if, for example, you know, you're wrong about your ideas, or the, the interface doesn't work, or, I mean, this, like, for example, a classic VC mistake, and this is one of the things I sometimes give VCs lectures about how to do boards. As a board member, you show up, and you maybe put two hours of work a week into a company, maybe three. You think about it, get some data. If you're lecturing the management team that's working there 70, 80 hours a week on like basic ideas in your board meeting, you've got one of two problems. Either your management team is really moronic, right, and you should get rid of them tomorrow, or you've got a problem with your own ego, right, which is obviously they would have considered some of these ideas, right? So part of the whole thing is the investing stance can learn the right things from entrepreneurship, but it's a bunch of different skills which being a successful entrepreneur can delude you to how to do that successfully. Other questions? So my question is, so when you first built LinkedIn, right, you sort of have the networks, I mean, I'm sorry, you have the, like, the website ready, but you probably have very few users, right? Yep. So what are some key pivots you took to grow that user base from zero to however many users today? So, um, yes, thank you, <laughs> good to remember. So the question was, you start LinkedIn, you, we turned the lights on on LinkedIn on the internet on May 5th, 2003. How is it that that becomes 9 million people later, and especially how are the first set in there, and how does the distribution end up going, given the distribution is key? Um, well, one thing is, uh, again, I was mentioning market timing and, and, um, and fortune. One of the reasons why I started LinkedIn almost immediately after I left uh, PayPal eBay, after selling PayPal to eBay, was that I actually thought it was a great time for starting consumer internet companies. And the ability, the, the, the bar was lowered to make certain kinds of distribution engines work. So for example, one of the reasons Friendster took off in 2003 
it was because it was kind of the only thing interesting going on. I mean, basically the Friendster viral engine was, come see the party, <laughs> right? Like this big social network where everyone's connected and you can see their pictures and you didn't realize you were three degrees away from these people talking about Burning Man and having drugs and sex in the desert and these other people being Hell's Angel bikers and, oh, isn't this cool, <laughs> right? Well, LinkedIn was, well, check out this new thing for professionals. And so, in fact, even if none of the, the, the there were a bunch of competitors that we've more or less left in the dust, <laughs> um, even if none of the competitors succeeded in everything else, if there was nothing on the professional sphere, starting LinkedIn today would be really hard, the way we did it. Because uh, just another site that said, hey, invite people and have them check it out today is hard because now all the sites are going, hey, invite all your friends, uh, which works a lot well for high school students and college students because those guys tend to like invite all their friends to lots of things. <laughs> but does not work for professionals very well. Um, and so uh, we just basically, and there's a bunch of science as well as art. I mean, there were a bunch of techniques about how to uh, have people psychologically incented to send invitations to make it easier for them to do so. So for example, when we launched, we launched with an ActiveX component that allowed you to just hit, you know, say, yes, please upload my Outlook, and then the Outlook would be uploaded. You know, those sort of things. So there's a whole bunch of techniques as well. But it's a combination of kind of human psychological motivation in kind of psycho ecosystems, you know, psychological ecosystems and economic environments and technical tricks for doing it. I've been a LinkedIn member since 2003, but I've never understood exactly what the revenue model is. <laughs> so, uh, we're profitable. <laughs> um, oh, yes, thank you, sorry. Uh, what is the revenue model for LinkedIn? Well, one of the things that I actually believe is true of most successful internet products is that you have to have a substantial free component. So there was a robust free account on LinkedIn. And what's more, we don't want anyone thinking that, oh my god, suddenly I'm going to have to pay for this. So we actually hide most of the things, other than advertising, which is there, which where we make most of our economics. Because the principal three sources of economics are subscriptions, job listings, and advertising. Now, the advertising is there, but we try to make it discreet. I frequently get the, I didn't realize there was advertising. <laughs> well, yeah, there is. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but also job listings, and then subscriptions, which allow any individual to reach out directly to someone else in the system through a reputation-based uh, service. The only time that you really encounter that is either someone's trying to get in touch with you or you're trying to get in touch with someone, and then you want to go direct to them, and we say, oh, well, now you need to be a subscriber. There was a question here. So being a GSD student and going to McKinsey <laughs> next year. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, you may so be the, the, the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, hopefully. Um, <laughs> You, you, you followed a similar uh, path because you were at Stanford, then you went into academia. I can't think of anything that's less risk than academia. Yeah. And well, then, <laughs> more or less. And then you suddenly stepped out of that. What motivated you to step out of that? Did you have an idea with which you were planning? Sort of, what was that? I, I understand you didn't like the, the academia, but did you just simply decide to get up and leave, or was there something in the back? I, I mean, a bit of your personal experience in that yep. sense, because I'm, I'm finding myself in that. Okay. So the question, to repeat it, because I remember this time, <coughs> um, I can learn new tricks, <coughs> um, is I, I was leading an academic path which has a certain amount of. Uh, well, at least it's a beaten path. Whether or not it's risk-free or not is a different question. <laughs> um, and what was it that motivated me to leave that the path of, and it was actually, I mean, you know, I went to Stanford, you know, all these competition to get in, and then 
you know, competed for the Marshall Scholarship and got that and went to Oxford and, you know, was going to become, get, go back to get a PhD, which is another competition, all kind of well understood paths. And part of, it basically was actually really the following insight for me, um, was two things. It was, I wanted to achieve things that had a certain scale, right? That, that's, that's what motivates me. It's actually not, many entrepreneurs or many uh, people are invest, you know, like, I want a big pile of money, right? For me, money is instrumental. Big pile of money is useful. You can do stuff with it, but I don't measure value in that way. Some people are fame, like, well, I want my, my, my uh, picture on the front page of the, of, of the New York Times. And, you know, I'll do that for instrumental, but I don't care about that either. But I, when I value what I'm trying to achieve in terms of what I think of the meaning of my life, it's how do I achieve something of scale that, that help make society interesting and better? And I said, okay, well, how do you do that? How do you achieve something of scale? Because if you actually go through all the normal hoops, <laughs> the ability where you do that is way down that path. It's like there's lots and lots and lots of hoops. That was the whole point about like, okay, I can eventually write popular books as an academic, but I have to have gotten tenure already, <laughs> right, as a professor before I can do that. And that's 15 years of writing books for 50 people. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Right, that's a lot of hoops to get to that, that point. And I said, well, what I realized was <laughs> if you follow beaten paths, it's almost always by nature much longer. There's a lot of people doing it. There's a lot of competition and so forth. And so you have to be willing to take risk. You have to leave that path. You have to do something that most other people don't do because they think that looks risky. This is the accurate contrarian, right? They go, ooh, if you jump off that cliff, you land on the end and you, you, know, you kill yourself, right? So no one jumps off that cliff. But if you're right and you got the right equipment, right, and you make it happen, then you can achieve something of scale. And I realized that, that was what I thought was a fundamental principle in the world. And so my, uh, then what my effort was is to leave that path as fast as I could to go do something, to try something. And you have to be careful about it. I mean, I was fortunate that my dad's kind of, you know, upper middle class, so I could spend out all my money and be absolutely broke and move back home. Now, he would say, get a job and you're going to work your way out of, the, out of living in, you know, the side room in my apartment. But that was, you know, I knew that was an asset that I could use to, to take that risk. But it's like, um, generally speaking, if you can take a smart, controlled risk, you would accomplish a lot more than if you avoid risk. And that was the idea. That was the, and then I started trying to figure out how to do the things I cared about. So, other questions? Yes. Um, one of my frustrations with all these networking sites is that there's no meta networking site where I can upload one single profile and just publish it to all the other social networking sites and see what interesting content, content comes up. I was wondering, um, is LinkedIn going to ever take that route or attempt to? Because as you already plugged into Firefox, so someone's got some skills like that there. <laughs> uh, we do have a plug into Firefox. Uh, it would be embarrassing for me being on the board of Mozilla not to have a plug into Firefox. <laughs> um, <coughs> Um, so the question, yes, thank you, was um, uh, basically, will LinkedIn uh, become an Uber network where it's a central hub for publishing to lots of networks or something like that? And the answer is a little bit yes and a little bit no. The answer that's a little bit yes is uh, one of the strategic goals of LinkedIn is to be your professional profile on the web. So we will help you publish that to wherever you want. So we already help you publish to Google. So we have a little, we have a two-person group that actually works on SEOing all public profiles. So when someone types in your name, 
We try to get it so that you're, if you publish your LinkedIn profile to the web, it's in the first page of results. <laughs> um, so publishing your profile is something we will help with. Publishing to other networks, uh, we're not adverse to publishing the profile to other networks and everything else, but we're also trying to make sure that we have that central where the publishing point with you. So uh, we'd only do that if we thought there was a lot of demand for publishing to this network. Like if suddenly all professionals said, I want my LinkedIn page to be a MySpace page, then fine, we'd do that. Now, it's a little weird universe, <laughs> and I don't know if it exists, <laughs> right? But, um, but that, it's like one of the rules in the net, which I really like, it's one of the things that, that's an like area of business I like being in, is always treat your customer first. So if your customer said, I really want that, then you do it. Now, it's actually a it's kind of a high-end Silicon Valley geek perspective to think about multiple, like one profile across multiple networks. It's, by the way, I've seen eight or nine business ideas in that and not invested in any of them because they're actually really hard to get off the ground. So the real central thing is having one thing that's really core that gets a lot of people into it because they find this valuable. Right? The multiple things, most, your average, like, I already have a tough sell to your average person in the world saying, you should have a profile on the web. Think if you walk up to somebody in the street in San Jose, right, anyway, and said, well, how are you going to manage all your identities on social networks? Wouldn't you like a, pro a program for that? They would look at you like you were crazy. <laughs> right. So uh, what was another question? Um, you mentioned that going, entering the market as a, without competition is your preference. And then if you look at Friendster versus MySpace, uh, clearly MySpace has dominated and taken over and came after them and beaten them. And so as a professional who's defended your turf, I'm interested in seeing what you thought about the Friendster versus MySpace, um, what happened there, what Friendster did wrong, what MySpace <laughs> did right. Um, let's see. So I, was in, I am an investor in Friendster. <laughs> oh, yes. The question is, Friendster was a first mover. MySpace came soon after, but after. The great granddaddy in the category is MySpace rather than Friendster. What happened? Usually, first mover has enough advantage that if you can close the door behind you, you have a successful thing. Good interpretation? OK. <clears throat> um, basically, it was Friendster's game to lose. Uh, Friendster, uh, through a variety of internal conflicts and internal politicking, um, couldn't coherently agree on a strategy or solve its problems, which had serious scaling problems. Right? I mean, there is a, one of the principles on the web is um, customer, you, there's a really direct measurement between the time that, of speed that your page loads and your customer happiness and your customer willingness to go somewhere else. So actually, like, for example, I'll give you a, 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 an example that Marissa Meyer talked about at Google. They tested doing 30 answers rather than 10, and they went, wow, people hate this. They don't click on links, and, they, and it doesn't work. Let's go back to 10. And then what they did is they tested 10 and 30 with the same time of page load. And they, they liked them both, right? It was time of page load. Friendster was getting up to, when its peak times when it wasn't down, up to page load times of minutes. Minutes, right? And it says how strong that first mover advantage was that it kept growing and people kept using it, despite the fact that when you came in during a peak time, load page, go get a cup of coffee, <laughs> come back, <laughs> right? And so, um, you know, one of the sad things is if Friendster had been able to both 
deal with its technical problems, and then it started addressing markets. There wouldn't have been room, I don't think, in my view, for MySpace, even Facebook, which I'm also invested in and so forth, because they would have been able to take that first mover advantage and do it. And um, part of that, it's a lesson in, in, in startups. I think one of the reasons I, I, I wasn't privy to the internal politicking discussions, but I think the problem is everyone had a different idea and they were trying to do it all at once. And one of the things you do in a startup is you're always taking risks. You do this now, then that, and then that, and then you just do them, right? And you know, sometimes you guess wrong and you're dead. It happens. Like uh, any successful entrepreneur who stays at the helm, you've made the transition from person with the idea and visionary to general manager. Can you tell me about a couple interesting or surprising, not obvious things you've learned in becoming a better general manager and, and what strategy you found best to learn? Let me see if I understand. There's two questions. Let me see which one you're asking. Could be both. One is uh, like transitioning the helm of why I hired a CEO and, and that sort of thing. And that was yeah, Tuesday. <laughs> um, so it's relatively recent. recent. Um, or uh, how did I learn to be a general manager or did I misunderstand your question? So the question was more the latter. How you actually Well, so... One of the benefits you have of a capital boom, um, so uh, like in the, you know, the, uh, a little bit now and certainly uh, back in the late 90s, is, um, oh, sorry, I'll read the exact question. So how did I get on the path of being a general manager? Well, actually, there's two stages of this that are valuable. So one of the things I realized about how internal company politics work, big companies, is that people who want to stay in those companies and so forth tend to just kind of gravitate towards successful projects and run away from unsuccessful projects. Because part of their career success is, oh, I was part of the Macintosh, right? And that was really successful. Look, you don't want to be part of the Newton. <laughs> Newton was, was a graveyard, <laughs> right? So you kind of go, oh, I'm going to stop working on the Newton. I'm going to see if I can get transferred to the Macintosh division, <laughs> right? So if you're in a big company and all you care about, like I, what I, all I cared about was getting general ma experience with P&L management, uh, managing groups, hiring people, layoffs, organizing software development from our perspective. I just looked for a project that I thought was interesting that was failing, so I wouldn't have competition for getting the job. <laughs> right? And that's why, that's why I went to Fujitsu. <laughs> right? Because it was a virtual world thing back in 1996, and virtual worlds were kind of a crazy idea. We'll see what Second Life does. Um, most interesting thing currently, but maybe it will, maybe it won't, who knows. <clears throat> um, looks promising. Uh, the second piece is, is then when I stepped out of Fujitsu into, um, into starting SocialNet, uh, when you have a good idea, um, uh, you know, people are willing to take some risk on you. For example, I had never, I mean, this is one of the classic dilemmas is you have to know the V0 to V1 game. How do you do that? Well, you can either find something good and join it early, or you can, you can persuade someone to let you do it for the first time. During a boom time, it's much easier to persuade someone to let you do that for the first time. <laughs> right? Because they're eager enough to find interesting investments, they'll take that risk. Right? So that's the second way of doing it. So one's in a kind of entrepreneur environment, one's in a big company environment. I don't know if there's others. There may be others, too. Get, a, get an MBA and go to McKinsey. <laughs> other questions? Sure. Um, you said earlier that you were talking about power distribution. You said most people don't, don't understand it. Do you elaborate on that? Well, um, well somewhat. Um, so the question is, um, uh, most people don't understand viral distribution. Uh, elaborate, please. The, um, there are a bunch of very deep skills and techniques for doing 
virality right. I keep a list of the people who I know who know that, and the list is currently 12 people. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm on the list, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, and, and you know, there's a bunch of stuff that can be done well, um, but it's a lot of work and there's a lot of different things. I mean, I started really paying attention to this when I was realized, because oh, I saw Six Degrees launch, and I thought, oh, that's clever, <laughs> right? And then uh, when we were working out stuff at PayPal, another guy, Luke Nozick, uh, came up with this idea of, well, hell, why don't instead of like, why don't we spread virally by rewarding people for, for like when I got you to sign up, you got ten bucks and I got ten bucks, right? It was clever, right? It showed the value proposition as well. Um, so there's a whole bunch of, uh, it's not putting up a little email your friends link. It's a lot more than that. So uh, there was. Uh, so the question is, what are the threats to LinkedIn now that it has problems? Um, uh, I think our principal threat is, uh, it's very funny, we had a couple of internal meetings on this. Um, my team would prefer we had competition right here because it's someone to race against because <laughs> it gives you a sense of urgency. <laughs> right? It's like, beat them, run faster than them. Right? And it's actually really easy to motivate in that circumstance. It's a little disorienting to be looking around in the English world and go, okay, well, what we do, we do best. We're biggest by orders of magnitude. <laughs> right? um, so I think primarily we've got this challenge of continuing to develop and elucidate the service in a good way and make sure that people understand how to use it and start using and adopting it. But as far as we can tell right now, there's no immediate competitive threat. Not in English, anyway. There's a site that wants to compete with us that's primarily German. It's called OpenBC Zing. And um, they went public on the Frankfurt Exchange declaring competition with us. Um, but I don't think they got the model that we're trying to do down. So uh, I'll actually prefer new. You can ask me after. I'm going to prefer new questions, yeah. No, no. Oh, uh, did you ask one already? Yeah. OK, hold on. <laughs> Um, so what do you think is the difference in, in skills required from between being a good entrepreneur and then being a good professional manager once the company's already made it? Uh, um, so the question is, what are the skills required for being an entrepreneur versus a, a professional general manager? And actually, there's a, it's a really good question because um, it's part of what I think is the difference in a startup and a kind of a going concern company. People frequently say startup and big company. But there's cases where big companies come startups. So the, the answer is, why did Steve Jobs have to take back over Apple and totally transform it? It's because Apple was already a dead company. It was already dying, right? And it needed a radical innovation. So he came in and did what a, what a startup person does, an entrepreneur person does, even though it was a company with thousands of employees. What a startup and entrepreneur, the skill set is taking wild but focused risks. You put it all on number eight, and you roll the dice. <laughs> right? And you see if you work or not. And making those bets well, because the way you get to discontinuous value is you take that focus risk, and if it pays off, you get something very valuable if you're intelligent in how you do it. Being a general manager of an asset and a going concern, you are actually paid to, to not risk the asset. You want growth, but like people will fire you and sue you if you blow up this thing that's already, you know, throws off money year by year because it's a going concern. So here is when you're fundamentally dead, right, and you're trying to get to something interesting and, and making an asset. Once you make it an asset, it's manage it to, this is actually where, for example, MBAs 
turn to being useful, <laughs> right? <laughs> because the question is, be very thoughtful and analytic in your decision making to make sure that you minimize risk and you maximize growth within a decision matrix as opposed to taking one big discontinuous risk. That this is actually one of the reasons why a lot of the structural training in MBAs is wrong for entrepreneurship because the structural training is a lot of analysis, a lot of thinking, a lot of like put the pieces together. One of the things I learned about entrepreneurship is, and this is at PayPal, was when I'm confronted with any decision, I make the decision right away and then I think about whether or not I unmake it. Right? So you say, well, we're going to take path A or path B? I go, hmm, A. Now, okay, <laughs> am I still comfortable with that? Or do I unmake the decision, get a couple of pieces of specific information, and then remake the decision? Because you, you, you like make the decision now. Go, go, go. Right? You don't do that when you're being a professional manager in asset. Or at least you shouldn't. <laughs> So the question about LinkedIn answers, uh, vision, experience so far, what's going on. So I'm hoping that LinkedIn answers will be the first very successful answer product on the web. Not to say Yahoo Answers is unsuccessful, um, but uh, it's messy and it's more useful for like, you know, what is Britney Spears' favorite color, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, Google Answers, as people may or may not know, was shut down because it couldn't get enough volume. It was using an economics model. Um, LinkedIn answers, the idea was, and kind of the apps that we will be generating to try to help each person with their, with their, have the value of having LinkedIn network is, what are the kinds of things that professionals actually do in order to be successful professionals where they use their network and it's on a daily or weekly or frequent basis? And one of them you use when you have a network is you go and ask them for perspective and advice on things. So, for example, one of the things is we're going to be opening a European headquarters. The normal way that I would start with this is I'd start calling people I know who maybe had opened a European headquarters before. I know someone said, do you know anyone? Can you tell me what the issues are? You know, they might say, stay away from Paris. They have terrible labor laws, <laughs> um, which is true. Hopefully, that won't offend my French friends. Because <laughs> um, basically, if you fire someone, you have to give them a year severance. Entrepreneurial thing, it's very bad. <laughs> um, and, um, and what I did is I actually posed this question on LinkedIn answers. And I got, I can't remember the exact number of answers. I think it was 28 answers, of which about 18 of them were good answers. It covered the gamut of all the variables that I needed to look at, things like taxation policy, direct flights, available tech labor market, um, uh, contrast in um, European centrality, and a whole bunch of other things. So I spent two minutes writing a question. I got a wide contribution from a large number of people on the kind of answer that would be very helpful. And even though that doesn't fully answer the question, it now makes my next step of, okay, now I'm going to go choose one much faster, much quicker, much more effective. And that's the philosophy of what we're trying to do with it, which is to give uh, each person the benefit of having their network, you know, the, the people who are responsive to them. Because part of the reason why people answer the questions is they go, oh, you're, you're, you're a friend of Fred's, right? Sure, I'll help you with this. Here's, here's some things to think about, that sort of thing. Um, that's that's the basic idea of LinkedIn Answers. 